This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome to it once again. Glad to have you aboard today across the Sportsnet Radio Network, Sportsnet 360, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome aboard once again. Here's what we got for you today. We're going to talk, I'll just be honest with you and up front. We're going to talk a lot about the St. Louis Blues today. Whether you're a Blues fan, you have high curiosity, medium curiosity, or meh, I can take it or leave it. Uh, We're going to talk a lot about the Blues. Jeremy Rutherford's going to stop by. We'll talk to uh, him about uh, the dismissal of Craig Berube last night as the head coach of the St. Louis Blues. Uh, this is after the loss against the Detroit Red Wings last night, but that was maybe nothing more than just the final nail in the coffin. I do wonder how much of the decision was made after St. Louis lost back-to-back games to the Columbus Blue Jackets and the Chicago Blackhawks. Speaking of the Blackhawks, nice goal last night by Connor Bedard. Pretty sweet, right? Hawks go up one nothing. Yeah, 4-2 Edmonton's the final there. Uh, the winning streak is now at 8 they're one point back of the uh, Arizona Coyotes for the final wild card spot with two games in hand. I know no one's counting chickens in Edmonton yet, but yeah, they're back and back in a playoff position here soon. Uh, so we'll talk plenty about Craig Berube dismissed yesterday, who this is good for, who this is bad for, how it happened, why it happened. And Drew Bannister comes in as the interim GM up from Springfield of the American Hockey League. Uh, Daniel Kachuk slides in as the uh, the head coach now of Springfield uh, in the AHL. So lots on the St. Louis Blues. Uh, we should probably park some time today as well to talk about the NHL skills competition. Last year, mm, not so great. And last year was last year was the season that it seemed that the hockey operations department in the NHL lost control of the skills competition and turned it over to the, I don't know, marketing department. Um, that was very much a made-for-TV event, but it was made for bad TV events and didn't really work out. It seems as if this season, uh, Hockey Ops has this one back. Uh, and there's a couple of different wrinkles and some twists to it. Most notably, uh, the winner of the skills competition, and there are a number of competitions involved where uh, 12 players compete in six different events uh, the grand prize is $1 million. As I've always said, that's cool for skills. If you want to make the All-Star game really spicy, really spicy, and if you want to see the players really go for it, winning team does not pay escrow. Dun, 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 dun. So we'll talk about these things and others. Uh, Greg Wyshynski stops back, uh, stops by an hour or two. We mentioned Jeremy Rutherford, Luke Gazdick on the Oilers. But joining me now to kick off the program in the bestie spot here on Wednesdays is Haley Salvian, uh, sports and hockey commentator and also writer at The Athletic. Hello, Haley. What would need to happen? Like, that is the wildest thing I think I've heard you say is, like, <laughs> Gary Bettman ever getting rid of escrow just because somebody won the All-Star game. And you've said some wild yeah, things, so if, if you, I know, I know. That covers a lot of ground, Haley. I get it. But no, <laughs> I, I say it tongue-in-cheek, knowing it'll never happen. But, but yeah. the, only, like, the only way you're going to get players to actually compete in the All-Star game, well, first of all, the players don't want to compete hard. The teams that own the players what don't players want them to compete hard either. What do players care more about escrow? Yeah. Like, like if you want them to play it, hard. So like, you're right. Th- 
they they I mean they they all agreed to it in the CBA. It's just it's a staple and it's not going away the minute you signed off on linkage and that's going to be that's it's a hill <laughs> for the NHL to die on come labor negotiation time. But I mean mm-hmm. players grouse about it, players hate it, but if you're on the winning team, how about that as an incentive to play hard? I mean these guys will, you know, knock their grandmothers down an icy road for a nickel. You put escrow on the table. <laughs> All of a sudden, we're getting like Flyers and Oilers Stanley Cup final in uh, 1987. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden. Oh, yeah. Anyhow, I. All star games digress. getting really aggressive. Um, <laughs> I don't think anybody wants it that way. I think you just like get the stars out there, do a couple of things. The only people that I feel bad for at the All Star game who actually have to compete hard uh, are the goaltenders. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's like every team's fear that their goaltender gets selected for the All Star game because they're the only, they're going back and forth. There's no defense, no mm-hmm. rebound, like, uh, rebounds aren't getting cleared. Goalies are standing there in front of pucks. Like I would imagine, it's one of your nurse, worst nightmares as a coach, teammate, manager to have your team's goaltender selected for the All Star game and then they get injured in a nothing, meaningless, glorified game of shinny, or as I put it, every year, it is the best beer league hockey game you will see all yeah. year. That's what yeah. the all-star games are, but it means every team's nightmare to have the goaltender go down in that one. Okay, um, the headline story of the day happened last night, and mm-hmm. it leads into today. I'll talk to Jeremy Rutherford about this, one of your colleagues at The Athletic at the bottom yeah. of the hour. Um, just your, your thoughts on the St. Louis Blues firing Craig Berube, the only coach who has ever brought, them a, brought the organization a Stanley Cup. Um, just your thoughts on, you know, Bannister comes in, Berube exits. Your thoughts, Haley Salvian. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're having Jer on because he's, I mean, great. He's one of my favorite colleagues. I love JR. Yeah. Um, and his take on The Athletic was really great as well. So it'll be, I'm sure, <laughs> better to hear from him than me. But I think when I saw this last night, I was surprised, like of all the years or all the times that the Blues were going to make a coaching change. Um, it being 28 games into a season where nobody, not even Doug Armstrong, thought the St. Louis Blues were going to be world beaters. And I think I look at this yeah. roster and I look at the construction of the roster and some of the moves that have been made over the last few years. And I think, like, how much of the Blues issues are coaching problems or executive issues? Um I think there's yeah. execution problems. I think you can say that there are high-paid players or long-term contracted players who are not um, showing up. I mean, uh, Jordan Kyra is, what, five goals right now after a 30-plus goal season last year? Like, that's surely disappointing. And you can always point to a coach and say, well, it's their job to get guys to start playing well. Um, but I think you have to look at the roster construction of this Blues team and, and think, like, this isn't all on Craig Brube. I, I understand that yeah. eventually you just might need a new voice or a fresh start. Um, and this is from JR's story, but he went back and, and found, like, in October, Doug Armstrong said, I'd love to just get third place in the Central. Um, you know, the team is 13-14-1. and one. It's not great. Um, but they're they're like two points out of a wild card spot. They're seven points back of that third place spot in mid December. So I guess I'm just a little bit confused. I know they've lost four straight, but I, again, I just think of all the times that you were going to make a change. Like I thought, I thought yeah. Craig Brube would have been on the hot seat last year, maybe when you still had like Ryan O'Reilly on the team in the first half of the season. But after selling off a bunch of players and not really doing a whole lot, it just seems. 
a bit strange. Maybe they saw that the West is weak and maybe they have a chance to make the playoffs. Maybe they saw the Oilers win eight straight after firing Jay Woodcroft, but that's not really the same situation. The Oilers were supposed to be a cup contender. The Blues were not. So it's just a little bit confounding, I guess. It's um, it, it, it's an interesting situation here, and um, you know, one person because because I agree with you, and I agree with with what Rutherford is saying. Like this, this is a team that isn't a quote unquote Craig Berube style team. You know, I was texting mm-hmm. someone in St. Louis last night, uh, and he texted back, and we were talking about this this very point. Like, is this you know, did Doug Armstrong give Craig Berube the types of players uh, that he needs to be successful? And this mm-hmm. person sent me back, like he just said, "Look, it's like this." Um, you know, if it were up to Craig Berube, he'd have 12 Braden Shens and six Joel Edmondson slash Jay Bowmeisters. Like, that right. is a Craig Berube team, other than, you know, as opposed to what they have now, which is a whole bunch of, you know, Jordan Kairos. And we know that there, you know, there have been plenty of times where Berube and Kairou did not see eye to eye, and yeah. Robert Thomas and Jake Neighbors. Like, this is who, who what this whole thing is being turned over to but I'm with you to me it's a matter of this is a matter of composition not coaching that is that mm-hmm. is the, uh, the 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 issue here in St. Louis and to your point totally. about them being so close to the playoffs as well I mean you'll well recall I mean come trade deadline time a few years ago they were three points out and they were like they had a legitimate shot to make it in and Armstrong said nope we don't yeah. have the team this year and then just started yeah. chucking everybody out the right. door asking he gone like that's that's the way that Doug Armstrong operates. Anyhow, um, Drew Bannister comes in, um, who I got to know pretty well when he coaches Hussein Marie Greyhounds. I'll talk more about that later on. Comes up from Springfield. Daniel Kachuk takes over um, AHL Springfield. Elsewhere around the NHL last night, did yesterday's Calgary Flames Vegas Golden Knights game feel like the night before's <laughs> Calgary Flames Colorado Avalanche game to you, Haley Salvian? Yeah, I guess a little, I mean, I guess you could say a little bit. I feel like it's been a lot of rinse repeat for the Flames. And I feel like, I feel like Flames fans are probably feeling a lot of um, deja vu, I guess you could say, because like how many more times are we going to say that the Flames are too good to fail, too bad to win, right? How many times are we going to say the middle is death and that's Mm. where the Flames are? And like these losses, these games where it looks like, um, they're in it and they're competitive, but they just can't get over the hump. I mean, they're losing in different ways this year, I think, than last year, um, but they lost a ton of one-goal games last year. They coughed up a ton of leads last year. Um, they're doing it a little bit differently this year, as I said. Um, but, yeah, it's just – I think the um, the loss against New Jersey was a little bit different, but another one where it's like, wow, they – because the Flames are in a difficult stretch of the – of the schedule right now where they're basically just sandwiched in a bunch of games against the top teams in the league. When you're looking at, you know, let's go to, they're playing against the devils. They're playing against the Canes. They're playing the abs. Um, they've got Vegas. So that's a, that's a tough stretch. Um, but you know, they, they've only won one of those games and that was against Carolina. So I think it's been just a lot of the same, a lot of the same for the Calgary Flames this season. And it'll be interesting yeah. to see what direction they go into. I feel like I've been hitting the just steer into the skid drum for a while. Like, it's just, it's it's not working out. So just, I'd like to see them do something different rather than just continue cruising along 
winning a game here than losing three straight than winning one um, in, in no man's land. Yeah. And I'm sure fans might either think yeah. I'm mean or, or they agree with me. I'm not sure. I don't think there's an in-between there. <laughs> No, I, I think that, you know, ultimately, that I think that's the decision they're going to arrive at if they haven't already yeah. internally right now. The the one thing that I was wondering about on yesterday's show about the Calgary Flames, as you have a look at Chris Tanev getting hit from sort of behind, sort of on mm-hmm. the side, first shift against the Colorado Avalanche by Ross Colton, you know, you're saying to yourself, okay, in a couple of weeks here, we've seen him eat one in the mouth. Uh, we've seen him get yeah. hit from behind, and, and he didn't play last night, uh, get hit from behind by Ross Colton. You know, if you're going to make a move with Chris Tanev, like if he's not being re-signed uh, long-term here with the Flames, I don't think that Conroy needs to make a move on Lindholm right now. But yeah. if I'm Craig Conroy, I'm worried that this guy might injure himself because we know it doesn't matter what day, what game it is, Chris Tanev only knows one way to play hockey, and that is a dangerous way to play hockey. Um, oh yeah. To me, it, it seemed like the only the only pressure is here. Do something with Tanev before it's too late to do something with Tanev. Yeah, I think the fact that they announced that he, he was day to day was like a huge relief um, for fans who like Chris Tanev on their roster. Also, were hoping to see what kind of return they could get for Chris Tanev. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the catch twenty yeah. two of any team poised to sell ahead of the deadline, right? Is you know, do we leave them in so they can keep boosting their value and showing what they can do? Or do we risk the fact that, especially with a guy like Tanev, as you said, uh, like he eats pucks, like he throws his face in front of a puck, he can block a shot. And that's part yeah. of the value of Chris Tanev. But that's, again, the catch-22 of a Chris Tanev is that's how he plays. That what That's what makes him such a desirable asset. But that's, I guess, what makes it a little bit scary if we're throwing him over the boards and in every game yeah. and you're just thinking, oh, gosh, what's going to happen next? So... I think um, it seems like they were in no hurry to make a decision on the TANF front, but I, I'm kind of with you. I feel like you almost have to do that sooner rather than later. I haven't looked at cap friendly, but with Klingberg on LTIR, would the Leafs have enough cap space yep. to bring in Chris TANF? Because every, I know that there were some Leafs fans who saw the return for Zadorov, and obviously cap space was a big thing there, um, who were upset mm-hmm. saying, like, why couldn't we have done that? And my first thought was like, well, wouldn't you rather have Chris Tanev? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, uh, th- this one will be an interesting one to, to follow. You know, I, I probably should have backed up the Craig Berube conversation by talking about the Ottawa Senators. Um, uh-huh. Carolina goes into Canadian Tire yesterday and wins and ends their losing streak. Um, and I don't know if this is just going to be a continued thing after every Ottawa Senators home loss. But, again, <laughs> fire DJ chance right at the end uh, of the game. It's almost as if Ottawa Senators fans are programmed now. If they go to the rink, if their Senators lose as they make their way out of the building, that's what they all chant in unison. Steve Steos continues to push back. This is not his fault. He's our coach. Players love him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I just wonder where this one is headed. Not at the end of the season, but can this coach get through the season for you know for Steve Stales and whomever the general manager is to ultimately make a decision on him and his staff. Your thoughts right. on what we saw in uh, in Ottawa yesterday, specifically that second period where they just fell apart. Aho with a pair, Seth Jarvis scores mm-hmm. as well, and the game is completely over after that. Yeah, well, that's kind of been a problem in Ottawa, right? Is the I guess the kind of lack of composure, and it could, they you know if they get a lead, they can't hold it or they can't come back in certain games. 
Um, I think the Suns are really compelling because, you know, we were looking at that team and they have so many games back of everyone else, right? At one point, they'd only played like 19. Last week, I think they were at like 19 games. So you look at them in the standings, you think, okay, they're they're 500 hockey team or they're just, they're one game below 500 right now. Um, So, you know, let's see what they can do once they get to 28, 30 games. Um, But yeah, I think last night was, an opportunity for them to get a game over 500 and, you know, try to get on a, just on a good stretch right now. I just, I don't know, Jeff, I feel like with Ottawa, as you said, it's just going to be the same rinse repeat Yep. Uh, after every game. If they lose, they're going to say fire DJ and, and the team's going to say, we're not going to do that. And I think, you know, we've had this conversation before. Um, you know, I feel like I've been a bit more bullish on, you know, saying that DJ Smith is not the problem because I think it's hard when everyone starts throwing stats from his first, like, three years in Ottawa. Like, this was a team, they were completely rebuilding, right? Like, you can't look at what DJ Smith did in year one and two when they had Ron Hainsey playing, like, 20 minutes a night or, you know, 35-year-old Ron Hainsey is your second D, right? It's just, it's not the same. That wasn't a team that was built to contend. But I think the question with DJ, and sorry, I feel like I'm going more on the DJ path in the second period, but I think the question that's always kind of been there with DJ is like, all the players love him. He's like a good guy. He's a good coach. He's good with young players. We've seen him develop good young players before, particularly in junior. Um, He was Anthony Sorelli's coach. Like, you know, go Jens, go. I feel like I always have to slide that in there. Um, but I think the question's always been like, is he going to be the guy that they ultimately win with? And I think this year more than ever, we are seeing Sens fans say like, no, it's okay to say we love DJ. It's okay to say he was the right guy for the last four years, but do they have the right guy on the bench for this team to actually start winning? Because they've, as the team's gotten more skilled, they haven't, necessarily change their structure or the style in which they play like when you have guys who can skate and they can handle the puck and they can score like when you've got a guy like Tim Stifla as your number one C or you've got Josh Norris, Drake Batherson, whoever it may be like you should probably adapt from a dump and chase style and I don't think we've really seen the Sens do that and then I do think yeah they Mm -hmm. they completely collapsed in that second period against Carolina And, and the Canes I think their record hasn't been great and they've had some issues, but I still think that's a good team at the end of the day. And they have guys like Sebastian Ajo who can break a game wide open, but yeah, the Suns just didn't have an answer. Um, and I guess that's part of the things where it's like, is that on the coach to, to get things together, to get his team back on the rails? You know the uh, you know the Kachucks well, having uh, covered both the uh, the Calgary and Ottawa markets. Uh, so I'm guessing you weren't surprised to see Brady Kachuk go to to uh, Pyotr Kachetkov yesterday. I'm so glad you brought this the, up uh, after the the old school poke check. <laughs> I but you know what, and this is the thing. I I feel like I'm such a hypocrite because I'm always the one saying like you can't slow down a clip or look at a freeze frame because the game's not played at that speed. But the poke check yeah. like hit Brady in this. Gate blade. He didn't. Go, he didn't hit the puck like he just hit Brady. So I understand why he was kind of pissed off. Like the old. Like it was cool from Kachetkov. Yeah. Like it's the old school. It's it's fun, but also like 
don't do that and be surprised and angry when Brady could chucks in your face immediately after. Like, you know who you're doing that to, right? Uh, but I don't know. I, I don't know how you feel about that. But I saw it and I was like, I feel like he should have gotten another shot <laughs> because he just completely yeah, flew I, I, out I, of the net and hit Brady in the ankle. It was like, okay. Interesting. I, 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 I tend to feel the same way about uh, about these types of things as, as you do. I look at those like the nature of that style of poke check as opposed to just, you know, you know, shooting, shooting out the, uh, you know, shoot, shooting out the, the goalie stick and hitting the puck. Yeah. Um, I look at that as tripping. Like I do. I just yeah. look at it. It's a, it's a trip. Yeah. Like he, and a, especially because he didn't actually. Talk me out he of like, it. Totally. And it's, it's kind of like soccer, right? If you like go for a slide tackle and you get all ankle and no ball, it gets a penalty. So I feel like yeah. if a goalie's just flying out with their stick and hitting a guy's blade and the puck is on, you know, his stick on the other, <laughs> next to the other foot, it's like, okay. <laughs> that was kind of dangerous. Um, a couple more things here. A little bit, little bit dangerous. Listen, I understand, and listen, Brady Kachuk is frustrated as well, so this all just sort of compounds. Uh, a couple of more things I want to fly through with you quickly. Uh, do you have a thought on the Leafs beating the Rangers last night at MSG? It's a back-to-back. Uh, congrats to, to Martin Jones with uh, 28 saves, Matthews with a pair. Uh, mm-hmm. Mitch Marner uh, had a wonderful night as well. Use your thoughts on the Leafs after any... And, and You have to describe it as an emotional loss against the Islanders the night before. Spin around at one of the toughest buildings, MSG, and beat the Rangers. Rangers handily, mm-hmm. Haley. Yeah, I thought it was a good win from the Leafs, especially when you consider where the offense is coming from. David Camp has had a kind of tough offensive year. And mind, and mind you, he's not supposed to be this dynamic offensive guy. But um, David Camp getting on yeah. the board is good. Austin Matthews being the first to 20. I know Brock Besser ended up following him in the late game with a hat trick for the Canucks. Yep. Um, but yeah, Matthews scoring the way he did. I actually read a stat from one of my colleagues at The Athletic. Austin Matthews had only beat Igor Shosturkin. Like, he's only scored on Igor Shosturkin in one game in his career until last huh. night, which would have been in February 2022. He scored twice at MSG back then, and that was the only time um, he'd scored on him. So Shosturkin's kind of been winning that goalie battle for a long time, obviously until Tuesday night when... Matthews got mm-hmm. goal 20 and, and 21 of the season. So, yeah, I think it was it was a good win when you look at Marner scoring, as you said, Austin Matthews getting two, and, like, the ways in which Matthews is scoring right now. Like, he's he's on a heater. It's, the puck is just coming off the stick so easily, and that's something that we've come to know mm-hmm. from Austin Matthews when he's scoring like this is just his quick release, how accurate it is, how hard it is. Um, he's on pace to score 66 goals this season, which would break his own Leafs record of 60 from a couple of years back, um, not many guys have scored 60 twice in their NHL career. So I think we're we're watching Matthews on a, on a pretty good heater right now, which which is fun to see. And yeah, it was just a good win against the Rangers. Martin Jones, you know, it's it'll be interesting to see um, how long that goalie tandem uh, can be effective uh, in, in Martin Jones mm-hmm. and Samsonov. And how long they can? Their PK has been really good too, Jeff. Um, they've been really that PK has been really yep. good over the last few weeks, and they've been really good without John Klingberg in the lineup. And um, this was something that happened last year with the Leafs too, is when they had a ton of injuries on the blue line, they got better defensively. And I would love for someone to do a story on how Sheldon Keefe uh, and and you know the team is able to do that when they're depleted on the blue line, how they get better defensively. 
But every time I tried to ask guys about that, they almost seemed offended of like, we didn't change anything. It's just the way we play. So I gave up on doing that story last season. So <laughs> if someone else wants it, to do it, good, I'd be really a, interested to listen or read it. Yeah. <laughs> I I think it's I think it's a legit point. To me, the most interesting things, you know, the Maple Leafs still find themselves, you know, in a in a very decent position, despite the fact that a um, their blue line is completely depleted, and mm-hmm. two, all those guys keep hearing stories about how Brad Treliving wants to completely redo the blue line. Like at the end of all of it, they're hearing a you know the the GM wants to wants to get rid of all of us and bring in something you know closer to what you know Vegas or Tampa or Colorado has, yeah. and we got to play through all this. And I I think it's a real credit to all those players because okay. they hear all of this and they know that they're playing you know pumped up minutes and they're playing higher in the lineup than they normally should on a really good Maple Leafs team, albeit, and they're performing well. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let me ask you about one thing. I wanted to do this last week uh, because it is the time of year. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier, Go Gens Go, and your background is with the Oshawa Generals um, yeah. as an in-arena host. And that's where I first <laughs> met you. Uh, the first right. day I met you, you gave my kid a puck. I will always say thank you for that. Um, the teddy bear toss. Iconic. What is it like to? What is it? It's <laughs> iconic. I know we love it every year around this time of year. We get uh, some great visuals of the uh, the teddy bear, teddy bear toss. Um, what is it like to work a teddy bear toss? Because as the in arena mm-hmm. host, uh, you're gonna be you're gonna be tap dancing for a while yeah. to keep everybody entertained. As here comes the bears, and you got to clean them up and get them out, and it's a twenty mm-hmm. minute pause. What's and that's where okay Haley now you gotta you gotta sing for your supper. What's it like to mm. work one of those? So I wouldn't say or do anything. I was like one of the ones on the ice trying to get all the teddy bears off. Everyone wore multiple hats, mm. so it's kind of like there's music playing and like the players are taking pictures. The photographer runs out on the ice. Me and um, you know my kind of day of coordinator who's with me, kind of wearing the headset, saying like, okay, do the do the Buffalo Wild Wing ad read or whatever. They're kind of coming out and helping all the interns and everyone's just trying to get the teddy bears off the ice as quickly as possible (laughs) because, you know, my, and she's one of my um, very good friends, uh, Jessica Corbett. She uh, was my boss at the time and she's kind of in my ear being like, hurry up, get off the ice. Like we need to get the game back, like pick up these dang teddy bears. So it's very stressful. (laughs) Everyone's having a great time, but when you're working it, like everyone's just being like, get the teddy bears off the ice and get off as quickly as you can. Um, But it's always a really fun day. I remember there was one teddy bear toss we worked where (laughs) the team didn't score and we're like five minutes into the third period. And we're like, what do we do? Oh boy. <laughs> we just lose one nothing and don't score. Do we just tell everyone to throw them at the end of the game after a at, loss? At the end of the game. And so that was always you know, it's it's very stressful waiting for them the, to score and it's fun though. Year years ago, uh it's funny you mentioned that. Years ago there was a Portland Vancouver Western Hockey League game. And, uh, geez, who was, I think it was Portland that ended it. This one, Vancouver was a real powerhouse team. And, you know, I think Portland might've been struggling. Surprise, surprise. Mm. Um, that's a shocker because Portland never struggles. And right. it went into overtime at bagels. And thankfully for the bears and the hometown crowd, the right guy scored. But that was the first time that I thought, wow, what if, what if your home team doesn't score? 
dirty yeah. teddy bear toss. You just chuck them at the end and say yeah. whatever. Or I'll, the other thing that I always wonder about too, and I think this ha- I think this happened recently as well in uh, in junior hockey. Um, you score the goal, here come the bears, but then the goal gets called back. Oh, I feel like. I've definitely seen that happen before. And it might have been one of those things where, like, some people still had their bears, so they do it again. (laughs) It's like, if you have a teddy bear still, like, toss it on. Teddy bear toss is stressful when you work in game day operations, especially if you are, like, up on the concourse somewhere, and then you need to run down to event level and then get on the ice. And then again, you're running around trying to get the teddy bears off while players are still skating around and taking pictures with teddy bears. Like, don't, don't yeah. hit me. Um, I'm going to, I might fall. Ignorance. Uh, yeah. I- ignorant question coming from me because I legitimately don't know. Do you change your shoes? No, I don't. You just go on with what you're wearing. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think in my first year, you know, you, in my first year doing in arena hosting, it's like, Oh, like, cute, I have these little boots I can wear. They've got a little heel on them. This is so nice. And then you realize it's really dumb. <laughs> it's like I'm wearing sneakers. Like, I don't know why I did yeah, that. Dude. That's like first year. When in doubt. Like, try to look, try to look yeah. nice for my first job. And you get a year in, you're like, never mind. Yes, yeah, so I'm wearing something comfortable and something's going to work yeah. on the ice. Um, mm-hmm. All right, Teddy Bear Toss memories. Love it. Um, you be mm-hmm. good. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thanks for... Uh, mm-hmm. Thanks for being in the best bestie spot again, and we will check Ooh. back next week. Thanks, Haley, as okay, always. Okay, see ya. Have fun with JR. Yeah, he's coming up in a moment. Jeremy Rutherford from The Athletic will talk about the, the news of the day, which is um, the dismissal of Craig Berube as head coach of the St. Louis Blues. Drew Bannister comes in, former uh, head coach of the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. He's a former CHL Coach of the Year, we should point out as well, and uh, Ontario Hockey League Coach of the Year. Um, pretty impressive resume in junior. I can't talk with much authority about him as an American Hockey League coach, but I did get to know him pretty well uh, as a junior coach in Sault Ste. Marie uh, under Kyle Raftis, the general manager who is still there. Uh, although one day the NHL will call for Raftis, as it is now called for Drew Bannister. Uh, the Craig Berube dismissal. Uh, what happened, why did it happen, and did the right thing happen in St. Louis? Jeremy Rutherford from The Athletic comments on this in a couple of moments. Also, top of hour two, it's Wednesday. That means MBSW time with Greg Wyshynski. Luke Gazdick also still to come. All of this across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360, wherever you listen to your podcasts as well. It's the Merrick Show. Back in a moment. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, so a couple of things here. Uh, top of the hour, Greg Wyshynski from ESPN stops by. Now we're standing by for uh, Jeremy Rutherford of The Athletic, covering the St. Louis Blues and the uh, dismissal of Craig Berube as head coach. Uh, Drew Bannister takes over on an interim capacity. Doug Armstrong, by the way, uh, in a press conference earlier today, um, talked about how the team has hired Brad Richards as a consultant 
uh, most specifically to help work on the power play with this team. Uh, and also Armstrong saying that nobody in the organization should feel safe. He said that is both uh, in regards to players and also management as well. Like the thing about Doug Armstrong that we know is if he doesn't think he has the team, he starts to make moves. It doesn't matter how close he is to the playoffs or maybe even in the playoffs. If he doesn't think he has a team that can compete, he starts to make moves. So for anyone who's wondering about the timing of this one, um, it really fits the MO of, of Doug Armstrong. I mean, listen, that's how Mike Yo was dismissed, how quick Baruby got his job uh, and held the interim tag for the longest time until that was taken off. This is kind of how Doug Armstrong has always plied his trade. Now, he went out of his way this morning at the press conference um, to talk about how just flat out the team's not good and the team's not there. Um, I know many will look at that and say, well, you put this thing together. You know, you were the one that went and spent money and uh, franchise capital on Jacob Verana, who now finds himself on waivers. Uh, and you couple that contract with a Kasperi Kapanen deal. That was the money that you might have otherwise earmarked for Ryan O'Reilly to go back to the mix after his uh, after his time playing with the uh, with, with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, this is you know you can look at and say, well, you know the Alex Petrangelo situation and now without Alex Petrangelo the St. Louis Blues found out really quick how easy it is to lose when you don't have Alex Petrangelo in the lineup and as the Vegas Golden Knights found out last season how easy it is to win the Stanley Cup when you do have Alex Petrangelo in the lineup so uh, a lot of this whenever a lot of this falls on the general manager Um, I know it's not always fair but as we've talked about before if you want to do yourself a favor If you want to do yourself a favor, or maybe more specifically, if you're a parent and you want to do your kids a favor, go to the dictionary, go to the section for the letter F, find the page that the word fair is written on, and tear it out of your dictionary. It does not exist. Uh, All that does, all that word does, all that word accomplishes is set people up for disappointment. Get out of your head the idea that things are or can be fair. Jeremy Rutherford joins me now from The Athletic all over the uh, Craig Berube situation, as he is all over everything with the St. Louis Blues. Thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? Anytime, Jeff. Doing well. Thanks. Um, so I, I know you're real busy, and there was a press conference this morning. I want to go through that and the dismissal last night and who this is good for, who this is bad for, what does this mean for Drew Bannister, what does this mean for the entire organization, what does this mean for Doug Armstrong, all these things we should probably get into. But um, should we have been as surprised as many of us were, Jeremy, at the news last night that Barubi had been dismissed almost immediately after the loss of the Detroit Red Wings? I think we should be surprised i think that if this would have happened in a week or two and the team kind of would have shown some more inconsistency uh the power play has been dreadful seven for 83 uh they've had wins over some top teams like vegas but yet losses to san jose chicago columbus um so i think when you look at the situation here in st louis jeff uh i think that it's a fair question when you think about craig ruby's job and, and should he have kept it Uh, But I think the timing last night after a loss, the fourth straight, you know, what did Doug Armstrong see in these 28 games 
that he wasn't thinking when he went into the season with Craig Burby as a head coach. So I think the immediacy of it, the quickness of it, I think is the surprise. Well, you know, and, and I think a lot of us wondered about that. And I was having a conversation with someone yesterday who brought up an interesting point because I think a lot of us are, are wondering exactly what you're laying out here uh, before us. And that is, you know, why did this happen last night? And, you know, part of the conversation that I had last night is, you know, was this a, you know, was this a, a matter of maybe even Craig Berube saying, I can't do anything else with this roster? Like, I've reached the end of my road here with this roster. Do you think that might be part of this? That's been, I think some people have surmised that that could have been the case, but Doug Armstrong kind of put that to rest when he just told us that he let the dust settle a little bit after last night's loss. He went into Craig Bruby's office with a beer. He told him that he's going to make the change, and Craig Bruby said, I get it, I get it. So... I think in terms of the information being delivered, it was definitely from Doug Armstrong to Craig Berube. Uh, Craig Berube was as receptive as he could be with it. You know, I don't think Craig Berube is Mm going to say anything publicly, uh, but I think that here in St. Louis and probably around the league, uh, it does look like an issue of the roster. And I think there are a lot of question marks with this roster, which kind of ties back into what you were saying a moment ago about Doug Armstrong and should he feel safe. But I think in terms of Craig Berube, um, yeah, he, I'm sure, had some concerns about the roster construction. Yeah, you know, and that's the thing too, right? Like, I always ask myself when there are coach dismissals, whether it's, you know, Edmonton or, or Minnesota, um, is this, you know, is, is the situation the team finds itself in, is it a matter of coaching or composition? And with St. Louis, you know, I keep coming back to composition. And the moment that it all really, like we sort of ought to sort of track back, right, and figure out when did the ball start rolling to where it got to last night with the only coach that's ever brought the St. Louis Blues to Stanley Cup losing his job. And I take it right back to the uh, the, the, the the botched efforts uh, to re-sign Alex Petrangelo. It seems as if from there, at least from my perch, it's been a sort of steady demise or a slow march to what we got to last night after the Wings game. Agree or disagree? I agree, Jeff. And you look at the situation, you know, Craig Bruby came in in 2018-19 and, of course, won the Stanley Cup uh, shortly thereafter. And And we are talking about, you know, five years now that he's been the head coach. And what's the average, you know, what's the staying power of a – head coach in the NHL, it's probably right yeah. around there even for some of the good ones, right? But I think that with better roster construction, with better contract situations, we probably could have seen more success uh, that maybe we don't lead to this day. And I think you do go back to the Alex Petrangelo situation and him not being re-signed because once you didn't re-sign Alex Petrangelo, now you try to bring in somebody who can help on defense. That's Tory Krug. That contract hasn't worked out, and there's still several yeah. years left on that. When he didn't work out, then you're trying Marco Scandella in the top pair. That doesn't work. And and then you're signing Nick Letty instead of David Perron, and now your power play is affected by that. So it was a trickle-down effect. I think that the talent base did deteriorate uh, pretty rapidly, and I think that, uh, that Craig Berube had a lot less to work with now than he did just a couple years ago. You know, it's interesting too that you bring up the the idea of you know coaches and shelf life, and I think that's what makes you know John Cooper's situation so remarkable in the NHL how he's been able uh, to endure. But I think you're right. Like over the course of you know four or five, six years, um, there tends to be I don't know how do you say it too much water in the wine. 
You know, that's it's not as potent mm-hmm. as it as it once was. A little bit off the fastball, whatever cliche you want to sort of apply here. But then I look at the. I mean, maybe I'm being too naive and looking at this roster and saying to myself, this doesn't look like a Craig Berube roster. You know, I was mentioning off the top of the show today, I was texting with someone from St. Louis last night, and this person said to me, like, look, if it's up to Craig Berube, there's 12 Braden Shens, and there's, you know, there's there's three Jay Bomeisters, and uh, there's three Joel Edmondsons. Like, that's a Craig Berube team. What's been delivered here is not a Craig Berube team. Does that find a home with you? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but I look at it this way. When you're the head coach of a team for four to five years, the roster is going to evolve, and it's not always going to look uh, reflective of, of what the coaching style is and also the league changes. So Doug Armstrong has to kind of keep up with the times and draft players like Robert Thomas, Jordan Cairo, and, and hope for a high ceiling with those guys. Sometimes a guy like Jordan Cairo uh, could be uh, not just singling him out, but players like him can be tough to coach when you're Craig Bubri and you won a Stanley Cup with a defensive style, uh, a hard banging style, yeah. and and now you've got a player uh, like him. So I, you know, I I understand why things happen the way they did, but what it turns out to is uh, a Craig Bubri who's trying to evolve with the roster and get yeah the type of play that he wants out of them, and it wasn't happening. You know, I'll add this, Jeff, quickly is that. Uh, Doug Armstrong is trying to stay competitive during a retool. That's difficult to do. And so what he did is he went out bargain yeah. shopping and brought in the Kevin Hayes and the Kasperi Kapanen and the Yukub Varanas. And uh, they're just, you know, Hayes is playing okay to well, but uh, the rest of them aren't. And so when you do look at that roster, like you said a moment ago, this isn't a roster that I view as, as a roster that can get into the second round or, or further. Uh, what stood out to you from the, the Doug Armstrong press conference this morning? You know, I think that uh, the one thing that uh, he touched on is is that he said, I take responsibility for this personally. However, this is the fifth coach that he's brought in. Now, granted, it has been 10-plus years. Um, but I asked him, Jeff, I asked him specifically, what do you take responsibility for? And, you know, he just said the state of things. But the big question here in St. Louis is these long-term contracts, Tory Krug, Justin Falk, uh, Nick Letty's got – yeah. Four years. Braden Chen originally had eight years. Pareko had eight plus one because he had a year left. Uh, there's there's just so much in terms of term on these contracts, and I don't know how you can change things. But the one thing that stood out to answer your question is Doug Armstrong said, I'm not afraid to send guys to the minor leagues. I'm not afraid to buy out guys, even though he hasn't yet. And I'm not afraid to find new homes for these guys. So um, if you're a Blues fan and you're trying to figure out what's next for this team, you know, they're hoping to get a bump from the coaching change here. But if it doesn't happen, big picture, you know, Doug's really, really going to have to go to work. You know, in, in those situations when the uh, – it's interesting, Jeremy, um, listening to Doug Armstrong talk about that, you know, not being shy about sending guys to the minors and trading guys and all that. Um, to say it is one thing, but to your point, like these are tough contracts to move. You know, I'm always curious where general managers are at with, okay, we get that you'll, you're willing to make moves, but in order to facilitate those moves, are you willing to add a first-round draft pick to it in order for that to happen? That's, that's always, that's always exactly. the one that I sort of come back to. Yeah, exactly. And if you did that, because of the number of these contracts that are long-term and because of the poor play of these players, I mean, you'd be attaching draft picks all day long. And what kind of model is that for success uh, for this franchise moving forward? I mean, you're looking at 
three years of Tory Krug and, and Justin Falk, you know, Falk, who I feel has been pretty good here in St. Louis, is sitting on no goals. Uh, and you look at uh, Braden Shen, mm-hmm. a fine captain, a hard worker. Craig Bruby would love to have 12 of them. You know, his production isn't there either. So if you even entertain that idea of moving some of these guys and juicing it up with uh, draft picks, you'd be, I mean, you'd be, <laughs> you'd be out of draft picks. <laughs> uh, you what, last one for you. Um, I know it's a busy day for you with the the big news here. Um, to me, the answer is Jordan Cairo. But is, is there someone on this Blues roster that you know now that Bannister's in um, and and Craig Berube is out that you can see? I don't know, getting a new lease on life, get you know with a different set of eyeballs and maybe a clean slate on him. Uh, we'll see more production. For me, the answer, and it might be an obvious one, is Kairou. But is there, uh, is, is there another answer, or is Kairou just the guy that everyone's watching now? I think Kairou's the main one. Uh, sitting on five goals, had 37 last year, like I mentioned. Um, you know, there's a lot of veterans on this team that, that maybe it'll give them a kick in the pants, too. Uh, I don't know individually any more guys that stick out like Kairou does, but I think... Uh, the unit, look, look at the power play. Like I said, seven for, what, 83. Uh, it's just, it's lost them a yeah. lot of games. And they could, they could be up in that wild card spot. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, Bannister does with that unit. Uh, but also you might have heard that Doug Armstrong did say that uh, he's been in, in talks with uh, Brad Richards. Yep. And uh, from, from afar, uh, Brad is going to offer his thoughts on the Blues power play. Uh, never a bad thing. Uh, listen, on that, we'll let you go. It's a busy day for you, as I mentioned a couple of seconds ago. Thanks, as always, for stopping by. We always really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for this, Jeremy. Anytime, Jeff. Uh, Jeremy Rutherford covers the St. Louis Blues uh, for The Athletic. Uh, the news of the day, which happened last night, which continues into today, uh, is a dismissal of Craig Berube, the third coach fired uh, this season in the NHL. So he joins uh, Jay Woodcroft and Dean Evason, as dismissed head coaches. Lane Lambert was close, we think. How close was DJ Smith? Don't know. If at all, don't know. Um, but this has been so far a season of you know firing coaches and we're not even at Christmas yet. Uh, more on this with Greg Wyshynski coming up at 1 o'clock. And then we'll also get on the Edmonton Oilers page who just can't stop winning. And as much as yesterday was positioned as Connor versus Connor and who's going to score the flashiest goal, well, that went to Connor Bedard, uh, who scored a gorgeous goal in a very Connor Bedard-esque way. Uh, goes under the triangle with a great shot past Stuart Skinner. It's absolutely gorgeous. But at the end of the night, it's a couple of assists for Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers go on with their two points. Thank you very much. I didn't get the sense, except for that one moment with a Connor McDavid back check where he really tied up and, I don't know, probably should have been penalized for, I don't know, interference, hooking, take your pick, uh, on the one back check where he tied up Connor McDavid as if to say, you are not going to score on my watch. Thank you very much. There really wasn't... Connor McDavid who was out there trying to impress everybody. Last night there was a Connor McDavid that was out there trying to get two points. And that's what you should, I suppose, expect out of uh, out of Connor McDavid as the Oilers climb up the ladder uh, to a playoff position. They are now a scant one point back uh, of the Arizona Coyotes with two games in hand for the final wild card spots 
in the Western Conference. Look at the Oilers go. Jumping over teams, and now they're close. We'll talk about that with Greg coming up in hour two. Uh, time now for Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book. Bet local, Matt Marchese. Uh, it was a busy one around the NHL last night, that's for sure. Uh, your eyeballs got a feast, and your eyeballs got a workout. Today, a little bit more of a relaxed Wednesday. Scotiabank Wednesday Night Hockey, Crosby and the Penguins against the Montreal Canadiens. Tonight, we only have five. Maddie, we only have five. What has your attention? Uh, it's the Sabres at the Avalanche. The puck line is Avs minus one and a half. The total has hit the under in four of the last five between these two in Colorado. Buffalo is 11 and five on the puck line in the last 16 games. And Colorado is nine and two overall in the last 11 versus Buffalo at home. What do you make of this matchup? I mean, I, I normally sort of bark off here. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you think in this one. Uh, Ivan Prosvetov uh, gets a start for the uh, for the Buffalo Sabres. He was good in relief the other day against the against the Calgary Flames. What do you make of this one? I look at it and I say these are two teams that I, I expect to score a lot of goals, and then I look and say, well, that's probably not going to happen just because we're not going to get treated to stuff like that on Wednesday night. But I, I, it's it's one team that you expect every single year with Nathan McKinnon and Miko Rantanen and Kale McCarr to be in that conversation being elite, and they are. And it's the Buffalo Sabres that you're just waiting for that lengthy stretch of wins to come up here. I don't know that it's going to come, but they have the guys to do it. Is it going to happen in Colorado tonight? Not sure about that. There's just lots of expectations, and... I like both teams offensively. I think there's a lot of talent, and it, they're both a lot of fun to watch. The Sabres are just a little bit more unpredictable when you watch them. Uh, really, and for the Buffalo Sabres, a lot of it comes down to net minding. Um, okay, so that's, you know, and by the way, we should mention the Sabres. Uh, you look at that last game a couple of nights ago, Robinson, Krebs, and Kyle Poso were the ones doing all the damage against the Arizona Coyotes. Great third-line offerings. From all those players, Colorado um, facing off against the Buffalo Sabres tonight, one of five on the board around the NHL. That was Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sportsbook, Bet Local. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, real quick, a DM that I get on Twitter uh, from a hockey player, former hockey player, by the name of Trevor Pryor. It's from Guelph, Ontario, goaltender. He sends me this DM. Hey, Jeff, 25 years ago, this is about the conversation about not practicing in the morning, but practicing in the evening. 25 years ago, playing in Italy, practices were at 7 p.m. because many Italian players had day jobs. We'd go out for dinner at 9 p.m., very European lifestyle. I liked it, enjoyed the discussion on today's show about it. Let's see if uh, I can get Luke Gazdick to bite on this one. He is a former NHLer, now analyst with us at Sportsnet, not just of the Oilers, but the entire NHL. He joins me now. Luke, how are you, pal? Good, Jeff. How are you, my friend? Uh, I'm good. So, okay, before we get into Oilers talk, and another win last night for the Oilers, wash, rinse, repeat. It's Connor versus Connor. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, but I was having a conversation with someone this morning about the idea of, well, first of all, let me couch it this way. Every team looks for a competitive advantage. And whether it was, you know, the Vancouver Canucks 25 years ago with their sleep studies, 
or whenever well, it wasn't 25 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, um, or other teams, everyone's always looking for an edge over another squad. And something that MMA fighters do uh, and boxers do is they work out at the time of day when they're going to compete. So they don't you know, do their workouts just in the morning. They work out at, you know, 8 or 9 o'clock when they would be in the ring. And I wondered about that with hockey and the nature of the morning skate. And would there be any value in moving the morning skate to the evening so your body is trained to be at its peak level of athleticism when you're competing, which is at night? So every day at 7 o'clock, that's when we're skating because you're training your body to be at its ultimate at that time of the day. What do you think of that idea? <laughs> well, I know you always got a, a spin on everything. Uh, I think hockey players are creatures <laughs> of habit. Um, as much as I yes. enjoy and think the idea is very interesting, you know, players are creatures of habit, and I don't know if you would be able to convince them otherwise. I do know that on that yep. same topic and that same trend, it, it was very prevalent when I was in Edmonton that even the scratch guys, um, so we did have our typical morning skate, but the guys that knew they weren't going to be out of the lineup, I always wanted to get my workout yep. and my cardio and extra conditioning out of the way in the morning. But the strength coaches and the you know coach the actual hockey coaches, uh, they wanted that all done at night mm-hmm. at the same time that the guys were playing the game. So that's why you'll see a lot Makes of sense. guys do their workouts during the first second periods of the game. So your body is kind of tuned that way. So I, they're already on that kind of yeah. same level. But to bring that to the same time every night, guys guys want to be out of the ring by yeah. noon and spend the day with their fans yeah. and that. Yeah, but don't you want to sleep in a little bit, treat your morning like recovery, and that's what I'm getting my rest. Like, I know that the, the players would push back. Like, make no mistake about it. And the Players Association would weigh in, et cetera, et cetera. You know, human life costs, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. I don't know. I'm just sort of noodling, noodling this one around. As one person from an NHL team told me this morning, Jeff, your idea is great if the athletes were talking about our horses, but we're talking about human beings, and that's the flaw in your argument. So I'll keep noodling this one. Okay, Luke Gazdick, uh, what did you see last night? Connor versus Connor. Bedard scores the gorgeous, gorgeous goal, uh, but the Edmonton Oilers and Connor McDavid with a couple of assists end up with the win. What did you make of the first encounter between these two? Uh, it was special, right? I think there's certain games that uh, when I was a player, you circle on the calendar calendar before the year, whether it's going to your home city, uh, prior team you played against. For me in Edmonton, it was every game versus Calgary. I had that circled. But uh, I'm certain for these guys, yeah. as much as they downplayed it, both of them you know, weren't, weren't speaking too much um, about the about the meeting, uh, it does mean a lot to guys. And uh, I'm sure it was one they were looking forward to. I told the story on TV last night, Jeff, but I remember the first time that McDavid played against Sid when I was on the team there and Connor was a rookie. Yep. And I know how much how much that game meant to him. And uh, I told a story I remember about Sid texting him after the game and saying, hey, good game tonight. You know, look forward to more of those and how cool I thought that was and how cool Connor thought that was also. But, um, you know, good for hockey last night, too, that with the late start, Bedard goes and scores an absolutely vintage goal three three minutes into the game uh, with that patented, beautiful release we've seen from him. And the competitor that 
I know I know McDavid is, and I think a lot of other people know how competitive he is. He wasn't going to let that sit for very long. <laughs> you know, he wanted to show out as well and, <laughs> and uh, put his stamp and yeah. mark on the game. But it's nice to see 97 flying again. I'll, I'll say that. Um, I, I think we can clearly yeah. tell something. Something was bugging him earlier in the year, uh, but he is back to doing McDavid things. Uh, I feel bad for Bedard on the other side a little bit every now and then. He looks like he's on an island. I think that that Hawks team is just yep. uh, player player to player, just so outmatched every game, but I'll give them credit. They, they work and they compete. Uh, the Taylor Hall injury really hurt Connor Bedard specifically. Like that's that that's the one because he was you know right. You know it's interesting too. I was having a conversation with someone in Chicago on Sunday. No, it was a Sunday. Mike, one one of the two, either Sunday or Monday. And this person was bringing up the point that yeah, you know the uh, the, the Taylor Hall thing really hurts uh, Connor Bedard. We all know about the Corey Perry situation. Um, and this person said to me, one of the things that's been a real saving grace for Connor Bedard has been Nick Foligno. That Nick Foligno has been tremendous with this kid, not just on the ice, but off the ice. You know, he can't go to a lot of the other places that the guys who are 21 years old can go to because he's still 18 years old. He just can't go to those establishments. And just, you know, Foligno will go out to dinner with them and call it an evening early. Like this person said to me, like, we don't know what's going to happen this year or what's going to happen next year with Nick Foligno. But they said, for the good of the kid, I really hope they bring him back because he's been aces, aces for Connor Bedard. You have a thought on Nick Foligno here? Yeah, he's been outstanding. What a blessing for the Hawks to have a veteran uh, around the room and around the rink like that. And uh, not just off the ice, but Foligno's been outstanding on the ice too. He had a great game last night, even in a whatever uh, 4-1 loss. He uh, he had a great move through the legs, drove the net, um, He's been producing, you know, quite a decent amount on the on the score sheet. And I had a chance to interview him on my podcast as well um, about, you know, a month and a bit back. And he told me such a great story about how when they first drafted Bedard, maybe a couple weeks after that, uh, they were put on a call or, you know, Nick called to introduce himself. And Connor was already asking him about what they did in Boston and the culture in Boston and how they could bring some of that to Chicago. And he was so inquisitive mm. on some of the habits and the cultures that were involved in being a Bruin. And Nick said he was just so taken back by the question because here he is, hasn't even turned 18 yet, and he's asking about ways yeah. that he can be better and he can improve and things that he can do um, learning from these veteran guys and some of the habits that they have in, in terms of the Bergerons and guys like that. So I thought that was so interesting. But Nick is the consummate professional, and uh, it, they're, they're blessed to have him there. They really are. Um, in conversation with Luke Gastic about uh, Connor v. Connor last night, and the Oilers win again. The winning streak is now up to eight, and they're one point behind the Arizona, or Arizona Coyotes uh, for the final wild card spot on the Western Conference. You know, there wasn't, there, there weren't very many moments that in, in the game yesterday where it looked like. You know, McDavid was, you know, trying to to one-up Connor Bedard or really going, you know, hard to show who the big dog is here between the, the, the two Connors, except for one back check. There was one Connor McDavid back check, and he probably could have, could have, probably could have got called on a hooking, maybe interference, I don't know. But you know the one that I'm talking about? I think it was either late in the first or early in the second, but on a, on a, on a back check and Connor Bedard is screaming down the middle of the ice, 
Um, there's a great bit of business done by Connor McDavid, ties up Connor Bedard's stick. And I'm thinking, in my mind, I'm thinking, Connor McDavid, this is his way of telling Bedard, yeah, you're not going to score one of those goals on my watch. I'm not going to let that happen. What did you make of you know the, the, these two comp- sort of competing against each other, not really competing against each other, not wanting to make it the central point of the game, but still at the end of it, McDavid wasn't going to let Bedard do that while he was on the ice. Yeah, late first, I believe. And you're so right. And that's the competitor he is. He will never say it out loud, but at the end of the day, he yeah. wants to win. And whether it's the one-on-one battle with the kid or the one-on-one battle against whoever he's battling with or it's the team versus the team, he wants to win every competition. And that's the way he was, whether it was in practice, whether we were shooting plastic tape balls into a garbage can in the dressing room. Like, he needed to win. Uh, and and that's yeah. just how it goes last night. It's, it's not him trying to show anybody up, but it's him saying, listen, yep. A lot of talk about this, but you're not doing this tonight. You're not doing this here. You're not doing this in my building. Uh, and you know he wanted to have the upper hand there because that's just the competitor he is. So is this just like what we're seeing out of the Edmonton Oilers? Um, you know, the coaching change. I, personally, I, I still think that the Oilers would be the same team, would be in the same position right now, even if they hadn't made the coaching change. No disrespect to Chris Knobloch. But I think this is just a matter of, look, Connor McDavid's healthy now. And this is what happens when Connor McDavid is healthy. I always use the example of the bullet and the vacuum behind the bullet. And Connor is the bullet and he drags everybody with him. And that's just what happens when Connor McDavid is healthy. Um, do you agree with that? That all that needed to happen here with Edmonton, because all the other conversations are gone. The only thing that had to happen was McDavid got healthy. To be honest, I'll slightly disagree with you because there's a couple couple coaching tweaks that I've seen that have really helped them. Um, one of them is rolling four lines, and that's something you didn't see Woody do a lot. They have seven goals from their fourth line over the last month, and yeah, you can uh, you know attribute that to personnel and turning back the clock with Sammy Gagne. Uh, but you rarely saw him really, really, truly roll four. And as a depth guy, if you want depth scoring, you have to play your depth. And that was something that I think Woody got away from is really leaning on his top six and his big guys. I threw something on Twitter last week about set plays. And you see these guys having almost an entire arsenal of set plays, not just on the, in the offensive zone, but off D-zone face-offs. Darnell Nurse had one last two weeks ago where he threw one all the way down the ice to Brian Nugent Hopkins, which was a set play, D-wheel around the net, out mm-hmm. of the defensive zone that led to offense. And another thing is the penalty kill, Jeff. I see that as a coaching decision by Chris Knobloch to move personnel down to three, three pairs, three double pairs. Six guys are killing penalties now, uh, and they're not named Connor McDavid or Leon Dreisaitl. And they are now 30. They've killed 30 of their last 31 penalties. They're going at over a 90% clip. And the momentum that that's giving them, and to add to that, Knobloch also is throwing out the big line of Connor and Leon after the penalty's done. Mm-hmm. So now they're either getting a tired second power play unit or they're getting a depth line on the other yeah. side. So it's just a genius move. And it's little things like that that I'm seeing that I equate to coaching. And give that penalty kill credit, mm-hmm. whether it's Mark Stewart, Paul Coffey, or a combination of the two, it has been night and day. And it's not only giving them 
momentum, but it's taking away from a team like the Devils on Sunday where you got the big boys coming out, they go 0 for 4, that's going to deflate your lineup. So, yes, I do think it has a ton to do with Connor buzzing and Connor being healthy again, but there's a lot of subtle coaching tweaks that I'm seeing that are really helping this team being successful. Tough schedule here for the Oilers. Uh, they will face off against the Tampa Bay Lightning tomorrow, and then it is the Panthers, the Islanders, the Devils, and the New York Rangers. Anything but easy. Um, but it's Connor McDavid and the Oilers. We'll see what happens here. Gazzy, as always, thanks so much for stopping by, sharing your expertise. Man, you got good real fast on television. It's great to see, pal. We'll catch up with you. Thanks, Jeff. Anytime, buddy. Anytime. There is the great Luke Gazdick, uh, Oilers analyst, NHL analyst uh, for us on Sportsnet. Okay, thanks to everyone who took part in today's show. You just heard from Luke Gazdick. Uh, before him, Greg Wyshynski from ESPN, Jeremy Rutherford on the news of the day, the firing of Craig Berube with the St. Louis Blues. Uh, thanks to Jeremy for stopping by, and thanks to Haley Salvian in the bestie spot to kick off the uh, program today. Elliot returns tomorrow. Uh, our supervising producer is Matt Marchese. Our day-in, day-out producer, David Sis. Thank you, gentlemen. Board op Lance Kennedy, TV director, making it look nice. Thank you, Jen Rolnick. All the mistakes were mine. I fall on the grenade for that. Um, but you're used to that. Merrick Show uh, back on the air tomorrow, 22 hours from now across the Sportsnet. Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360. Five games to choose from tonight. Enjoy them. We're back to talk about them tomorrow.